Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Knope. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. We really came out of it with a, a new realization about the emerging importance of local news. Not that local news hasn't always been important, but there was a new emerging focus on it. I think what's happening in news and media and information is that it's evolving, right? How we're receiving it, how we're distributing it, how we're sharing it elsewhere. So that gets to one of the key things that the report's able to show is that Oregonians are unequally served by local news. All right, folks, uh, this week we were very excited. We got to talk to Regina Lawrence and Andrew Davigal from the Agora Journalism Center at the University of Oregon. And this was a super fun conversation. I think you all are going to enjoy it. We cover a lot of ground. We talk about, every, they came, just came out with this report that we talk about that is basically an overview of the state of local news and information systems in Oregon. Spoiler alert, it's not great, but there are reasons to be op optimistic as we talk about. We talk about whether government should be funding news. Reagan has some ideas on that that are, were different than mine and Regina and Andrew's. We talk about recommendations for how to improve the state of local news. We talked about different models that are new and exciting. And like, I think the important thing for listeners to know is that we talk about this openly, but like our audience is more political. It's people running for office, working on campaigns, party people, campaign people, lobbyists. This conversation is geared specifically for you as an audience. This is not a conversation about journalism for journalists, although we know some journalists listen. This is really for people in politics to understand the dynamics a little bit better. And Reagan actually has done a good job of securing some future guests who are actually working in the industry. We won't reveal names yet until we get those recorded, but we're, we want to focus on this issue because we think it's really important for Oregon politics. So that's a little bit of an overview. Reagan, you were... You were uh, pretty animated and engaged in the conversation. What did you think? So one of the things I love is thinking about the business of journalism because it's fascinating to me. And I talked about because I'm kind of following some of these national outlets and some of the local ones, but like Semaphore and Axios and Puck are a lot of my media diet right now. And it's just super interesting to kind of read, see how they're trying to innovate in formats. The other thing too is I think, Ben, Republicans get a bad rap with the media because of a certain former president and how he handled the media. And Ronald Reagan, what I was trying I know, to do- Awful to the media. <laughs> oh, you meant very nice. Oh, you meant Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, oh gosh. Yes, I did. So, and I think one of the things I was trying to do in this conversation is approach with an open mind, like the future of journalism and how it can be more. I really hate to say this, Ben, but I'm going to be say more inclusive of Republicans and also get more buy-in from Republicans because I think mm -hmm. that if you want a healthy democracy, you got to have that. And you've got to have, you know, both sides making sure that they're, you know, they're not abusing power, which is one of the key aspects of journalism and being a watchdog, right, which is one of the important roles that they play. So anyway, I thought it was a great conversation. I was super interested and really impressed with the work and the breadth of their research. And, you know, looking forward, we're going to have them back at some point and have even more conversations about this because we could have talked for three hours. Yeah. And I think next time too, like after we were done recorded, we talked a little bit about this, but like the partisan stuff is usually the subtext in journalism. Like we don't mm -hmm. actually say out loud what I think we all know, which is like your side, Reagan thinks most journalists are liberal and have a yep. bias against your side. My side, as I was talking about, like there's a lot of people in the democratic politics who think like the media is unfair or doesn't treat certain elected officials in Oregon who are Democrats fairly. 
and like you know there's you used the term do you say liberally educated when we were talking on the phone i like, think i probably did uh <laughs> you know having a, an education is increasingly seeming to be a liberal point as republicans focus on non-college educated voter so like i like the the point is like partisanship and like political polarization are very present in what we all think about journalism and coverage so i think i think we need to have more conversations with that openly and what it means and how we mitigate for it like obviously on this show one way you can mitigate for it is like you know where i'm coming from on issues and like what i believe and you know where reagan's coming from and so we're kind of just upfront about our personal belief systems we talk a little bit in the episode about like how journalists are trained that's something andrew has highlighted like training journalists to use better practices or practices that are can kind of ensure the building of more trust over time. Like there's a lot of conversation to be had in this topic. We're really interested in it. So look forward to more episodes on this topic, but we've already talked too much in the intro. So with that, please enjoy our interview with Andrew and Regina. All right, Andrew Davigal and Regina Lawrence, thank you so much for joining the podcast. How are you guys doing today? Good. Uh, so for having us. Our listeners will be listening to this later than we're recording it, obviously. Today is the day after Election Day. But you all work for the University of Oregon in the Agora Journalism Center. You're not currently serving as journalists. So does that did you have a late night last night, like reading results or doing anything? Or do you like that is not part of your job anymore? <laughs> I was still reading results, looking at the needle. <laughs> yes, we were all looking at the needle. <laughs> because we care, right? We care about what's the outcomes. So Yeah, constant refresh, right? Yeah, so yeah. my first question is, is the needle bad for everyone's health? <laughs> well, I think so. If, we, if, we, if they resurface the 2016 needle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that was nerve-wracking. <laughs> that is true. So we're going to cover a little bit of ground today, but before we talk about the state of journalism and the report that y'all just came out with, Regina, we'll start with you. Can you give us a little bit of a professional background? Like what was your trajectory that led you to your current position? Yeah, thanks so much. This is really fun to get to talk with you both. So I am not and never have been a journalist. I'm not trained oh. as a journalist. I've never worked as a journalist, but I am a researcher. I study journalism. So I've okay. had a career of about 25 years of doing research on how journalists cover politics and policy issues, et cetera. So I had the opportunity to come to the University of Oregon over seven years ago now. And for me, the big draw was to be able to work with Andrew at the Agora Journalism Center, because I really believed in the, the foundational mission Mm -hmm. about trying to help journalism innovate to become more trusted and relevant and inclusive for communities that really fit with just the long trajectory of my own interests. But I'm a political communication scholar by training, so I have a little bit of a different focus maybe, and I think that's part of what makes Andrew and I a really interesting team. Cool. So Andrew, what about you? What's your professional backstory? Just to, just to echo what Regina said, I mean, I think one of the things that I really enjoy working with Regina is the fact that we're, you know, looking at it from, from the strengths of both practice and academic research. So what I'm, what I've, I've been a journalist for over three decades, as my wife would say, a recovering journalist. So, you know, I cut my teeth in uh, small newspapers in, in California, then I've worked at various newspapers across the country, including the Tribune in Chicago. And then my last newsroom job was being the multimedia editor at the New York Times. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. 
What did that <laughs> job entail, actually? Because I'm super interested. Is it like, were you there to acquire Wordle? I mean, like, what, what did that mean? <laughs> That's just, well, yeah, I don't really... know. I just love that. <laughs> oh, when when I joined the Times, the newsroom, the digital newsroom was still on a different building, not within the new building that that, that we've ended up moving into. Oh, wow. So, but my job was really about was really kind of being a, a traffic cop, a conductor, and also just a facilitator between all media. Because again, the role of multimedia seems like it's all media, but it's really specifically in collaborating with video, audio, graphics, text, obviously, and design, and really kind of cultivating that and bringing amazing editorial projects to light. That's great. So, and either one of you can take this or you can both take parts of it, however you feel comfortable doing it, but what is the Agora Journalism Center? What's your goals and what do you do? Sure. Well, the Agora Journalism Center, I, I, first of all, I, I always like to tell the story of when I first got hired, the idea was, I because I got hired at the University of Oregon to really help launch a center focused mm -hmm. on journalism innovation and civic engagement. In fact, that was the name of the of the center before it was officially launched. And so when I first came aboard, it was, hmm, the acronym is JICE. I don't know if I want to like that Twitter handle, JICE. <laughs> so it's like, what is, <laughs> what do we really want? What's the center's purpose? And I always like to describe it as an opportunity to really bring people together, have them present information as a community, deliberate, discuss, and really find solutions to really kind of solve what was what's challenging the community, right? And there was a place like that in ancient Greece as we know, called the Agora. So since the uh, the funder didn't really demand a name uh, support within their, to name the center, we really wanted to really, again, hone in on the purpose of, of the center. And we ultimately called it the Agora Journalism Center. And we're really focusing on being the forum for looking at local news and civic engagement. Again, bringing people together and really focusing on media and journalism that it starts with communities first. There's definitely a non-zero number of people who assumed that there was a billionaire named Agora who donated money to create, <laughs> to create the center. His name um, is Phil Agora, actually. He used to run uh, Adidas. Um, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I literally never thought about that before. That's hilarious. <laughs> Regina, anything from your lens that you wanted to add that Agora does? Yeah, so I think one thing I'm excited about is that the report that I think we're going to talk a little bit more about today, that comes directly out of a kind of strategic revisioning that we did for the Agora Journalism Center a couple of years ago. We actually started that process at the height of the pandemic, which was kind of a good time for everybody was sort of, you know, drawing in a little bit and being more introspective. And we really came out of that process talking to people across the country really came out of it with a, a new realization about the emerging importance of local news. Not that local news hasn't always been important, but there was a new emerging focus on it. And mm -hmm. we thought, my goodness, there's really nothing, certainly in Oregon and really along much of the, of the West Coast, there's really not a center that can be an innovation hub and a research hub for this challenge that is a nationwide challenge. So we really came out of that process knowing that we wanted to really zero in on local news, having done a lot of projects in the past that were local, but also national. We had done international projects in different parts mm -hmm. of the world. So this for us was like a sort of a doubling down on the local aspect. And that's proved to be really, really rich and rewarding. That's a great transition to talking about the report. It's called Assessing Oregon's Local News and Information Ecosystem. 
It is for the year 2022. It sounds like this might be something that you'll be doing on a regular basis um, moving forward. I'm going to give my caveat about this, and then we'll ask you a little bit about this as well. But like our podcast, I'd say primarily is listened to by politicos, elected officials, staffers, party volunteers, et cetera. And we're talking about journalism. And I think this is an incredibly important issue for people who are in politics to care about and to know about. And there's some controversy, like we'll talk about Les Seitz's criticism about public funding and some of the other models. And like, it's not clear to me exactly what the role of people in politics have in supporting or improving conditions. But I think as a baseline, we should all acknowledge that the health of local news ecosystems has a huge impact on the health of our democracy. And Andrew, you kind of touched on that about your why a little bit, but everything from voter turnout to corruption to engagement in local government like matters deeply. And so that's our why for our listeners, like why we wanted to highlight the work that you're doing in this report. So we'll dive into some of those issues on a little deeper level. But just as a starting point, Regina, I know, at least for the Oregon 360 mention, you were writing that. So I'll start with you on this question. What does the report say? What's the high point takeaway that you are hoping that folks will walk away from after having read it? Yeah. And and it really is a neat opportunity to talk to your particular audience. So thanks for kind of queuing that up. Um, So there's three important things in my view that the report does. And the first is it gets to the point you were making a second ago. And that is to really bring together in a kind of concise and detailed way, the mounting pile of empirical evidence Mm -hmm. that really shows the connection between robust local news and the civic health of communities. So journalists have kind of known in their hearts, known in their guts for a long time that what they do is good for communities when they do it well. Mm -hmm. But it's really only more recently that we've had an emergence, um, an acceleration of research in this area. And so now we have empirical evidence, study after study, that shows just what you were saying a second ago, that when local news shrinks and disappears, we get declining levels of voting and civic engagement. We get increasing levels of polarization. We get a decrease in things like split ticket voting. We get more attention to very polarizing national news, less attention to what's happening at the local level that is still a way that we can be you know, knit together as communities. And we see also that government corruption and also corporate corruption can all increase when those, you know, the proverbial watchdog eyes aren't on government, aren't on business. So now we have empirical evidence. We don't we don't have to just assert anymore that like journalism is important to democracy. Like now we can really, really show it. And I think that matters. So the first thing we wanted to do in the report is bring that all together. So people would have those references if they want to click through to all those links and read all those studies, they can or they can just read our report that summarizes that research. The second important thing is the data that we provide in the report. And that is um, the first, to our knowledge, the first effort to map around the state every outlet we could identify. And there's some caveats there I'm happy to talk about if you're interested, but every outlet we could identify that's regularly producing original local news content, local defined as, you know, state, regional, local, hyperlocal. And that's really important, being able to simply show like how many outlets do we have that are even still doing that? Where are they located? Where are they concentrated? 
So that gets to one of the key things that the report's able to show is that Oregonians are unequally served by local news because in, I mean, it's pretty intuitive what we found that in more populated areas, you know, Multnomah County, I-5 corridor, Bend area, et cetera, of course you have more news outlets, you have more different kinds of news outlets, but there are big geographic areas in Oregon that are served by only, in some cases, only one or two outlets. And so that means they're like, you know, one closure away from maybe losing access to truly local news at all. So we think that's one of the most important things we were able to do. And also, as you kind of suggested a second ago, this data that we created, this database um, provides a, a snapshot. It's probably incomplete. It's probably, you know, there are maybe mistakes here or there, but it's a starting place and it's a baseline so that we should be able, in theory, over time to track what's happening with local news in Oregon. And we feel like that effort to just understand what's happening is so important. So the first is the literature and the research. The second is the data and these findings and the mapping of it. And then third important thing, we try to explore what are some of the innovations and investments and ideas that are happening here in Oregon and in other places around the country, because this is not an Oregon problem mm -hmm. uniquely, right? It's a problem that's being faced by pretty much every state in the nation. So we look around the country and talk a little bit about ideas that are being tried in other parts of the country that we might want to learn from here in Oregon. So Andrew, I'm going to read a little excerpt from the executive summary and I would like to kind of hear your reflection as someone who's who's worked in the industry. My takeaway was that the in the executive summary was actually I'm I'm not even going to give my this is what you wrote. The overall picture, however, is concerning. The underlying infrastructure for producing local news has been weakened by two decades of losses of newsrooms and reporting jobs. And news organizations today, from the smallest all-volunteer hyper-local websites to the largest legacy newsrooms, often sense they are swimming against the tide of economic, technological, political, and cultural changes that threaten the long-term viability of local news production. Are you pessimistic? about the future of news in Oregon? Or is there some optimism that you want to highlight from the report as well? Yeah, I, I don't consider myself pessimistic. I think I am optimistic. And the reason for that is because I think what's happening in news and media and information is that it's evolving, right? How we're receiving it, how we're distributing it, how we're sharing it elsewhere. All of that is in the mix, and it's been changing and evolving in the last couple of decades for sure, right? Ever since the internet and how websites have evolved. And I just see it as an ecosystem that's evolving. Now, it's a matter of how are we going to evolve? Are we going to evolve strictly from a money sort of profit model or are we really kind of evolving to really support communities? So that, mm -hmm. to me, that's 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 the core, that's the core question that we'd want to do and really want to investigate is if we're evolving this and finding ways to, again, fill those much needed information to community members, how are they receiving it? And we should really pursue that, as they always say, go where people are. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a model for it. Go to where they are congregating, go to where they are sharing information, whether it's on texting mobile, or whether it's on platforms like TikTok, God forbid, no, actually <laughs> TikTok. <laughs> Or just plain old email. That's why newsletters are so popular. Or is it personally in my ear, just like with podcasts or YouTube, right? as we're mm -hmm. recording here, right? So all of these platforms are merging, and I just feel like we're 
the industry is has tested tested models and tested ways to reach their constituents. I just don't think we're actually consistent enough and, and persistent enough to see what works and how do we continue to pursue that in getting, again, the right information. And it's not just the right, getting the right information to the right places, but it's really relevant information. Do people care about this information? And do they find it useful? And mm -hmm. is it reflected on their lived experience? And not all of that, I think journalism has had challenges fulfilling. Reagan? So I want to talk about, and maybe I'm framing this wrong, so tell me if I'm framing this wrong, but <clears throat> I want to say that there was kind of the, the news set up in the early 1900s and the historically, the kind of framing that we had, or that at least I have for that, was there was kind of a battle between more partisan newspapers and the the nonpartisan news world wasn't as well formed as it is now, right? And so you kind of had these papers that were well known to be a little bit more Republican leaning, a little more Democratic leaning, right? And then I'm kind of like, I was looking through your database and kind of looking and you kind of see like Portland Mercury, which is a lot more Portland focused. So like, I don't want to turn this into a partisan battle, but what I kind of am asking, I guess, is when we're talking about lived experience and local, like there's obviously value for Portland and Portland Mercury. Is there value for a more conservative paper in Eastern Oregon or, or mm -hmm. something that has a little bit more partisan flavor, I suppose, but isn't the goal isn't overtly partisan. Does that, does that make sense? Did you guys, you know, look at that, think about that? What's, I would be super curious about your feedback on that. That's such an interesting question. Thank you for asking that. I'll just start and I'd love to have Andrew jump in. First of all, to kind of answer your question about, did we look at that? I mean, in a way, yes. And in a way, no. Sure. So what we did when we were trying to identify all the outlets that we would include in this database of hundreds we would go in during a specific period of time and figure out if that local outlet seemed to be producing its own news coverage that was really focused on local or civic affairs and was doing reporting, not just opinionating, right? Mm -hmm. Not just having, um, you know, op-ed type material, but actually having some news reporting. And we didn't try to like split hairs too much. We just try to just really look at it and say, this, this appears okay. like they actually went somewhere. They actually talked to somebody, they actually examined a document, you know, whatever journalistic techniques. And so that would have, that would mean that there would be some kinds of sites that wouldn't show up in our refined database. Mm -hmm. And our point isn't to say, and therefore they're worthless. Our point is more to say, we just wanted to, for now, really focus on this question of local news production. So then that in a way isn't what you were asking. You were really asking about, is there a role? I think you were asking about, is there a role for news outlets, but that have a more sort of a partisan framing to them? Yeah. Uh, because we see that, of course, in cable news, that's the predominant model, right? That mm -hmm. is the business model yep. for cable news, for example. And for some extent, that's, you know, that's increasing in local outlets. And so, you know, I guess my own view on this is that it may be that as the news media system evolves, like Andrew was just talking about, there is a, an audience out there that is looking for news and information that's coming to them framed through a value set or a set of policy preferences or a set of identities that feel familiar, that feel congenial. And that may be for some people the main way that they want to engage with news. Right? right. So to me, it's like a really lively question for debate. Like this would be a great question to take apart totally. in the classroom. Right. Like, is yeah. that 
Like what's the value of that for just gaining more people who are going to at least pay attention then to local news and affairs if it comes to that framing and then maybe kind of what might be the downsides of that. So to me, as you can tell, there's not necessarily an easy answer as to whether like that's needed or that would be a problem. And I bet there's a lot of different viewpoints on that that out there too. Yeah. Well, and I think the way I'm thinking about it is it could bring more people in who are skeptical of journalism because you obviously have a, I would say, I, I would say more on the conservative side, you definitely have skepticism about like journalism and are they too liberal and all that kind of stuff. Right. And whether that's right or wrong, that's just like the perspective they're kind of come in with at this point in where we're at with where journalism has evolved to. Right. And so the thing I'm definitely thinking about, and one of the reasons I love our podcast with Ben is like, I'm not coming here and saying I'm not a Republican or that I'm perfectly fair-minded. I'm coming here saying I have a preconceived set of ideas, but I want to have a discussion. And so I think that that's definitely where I think about the potential role to have maybe more conservative and liberal you know, news outlets of some kind, but that aren't going to reinforce all the polarization all the time. But I think mm-hmm. it matters a ton who runs them and where they're funded from and all that stuff because you also see – national journalism that's literally just funded by political parties to try to reinforce, you know, victory in elections. Right. And that's a lot different than news. I'm glad you raised it too, because I want to like, like sort of give the additional shout out here that one reason we were interested in featuring, you know, the bridge and Orient 360 in the report is because of that model that you all are trying to do something that I think you're being very clear, like this isn't really journalism in the sense that we are, you know, trying to, you know, be completely neutral and kind of leave our partisan identities at the door. Instead, as you said a moment ago, Reagan, we're trying to have a discussion mm-hmm. that where we get to bring our political beliefs to the table. And I think that there's a there's a, a really healthy audience for that and a real, in my opinion, a real need for that. So there's one thing to think about partisan outlets that kind of hunker down and only cover the world through that lens. But you all are trying to create here, I think, is something different that's really sort of cross-partisan, if you will. Andrew, do you have any reflections on that partisan question? Just a response and an invitation uh, to to your listeners and, 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 and viewers is the fact that one of the ideas behind the database and, of course, the report, and as you led with this conversation, that our goal and our hope is that it's a recurring report. So we that's one of the reasons why we also make available a feedback form within the report so that if there are any missing information or any outlets that has come out recently, regardless of, you know, I mean, that's the if we look at the methodology, you'll see uh, exactly our methodologies of selection. So if there's any anything anyone missing, please make that suggestion. We definitely want to review it. There will be a point where we're not going to update it based on the existing report so that it's a snapshot. But our goal is to keep the database fresh so that, you know, we see and track that over time so that it can inform us in whatever data set that we can really kind of rely on in making decisions for ourselves, right? Or Mm. decisions for the public. Reagan, when you were describing that in your initial question, I was thinking to myself, wow, that sounds like a disaster, like partisan local news. And then you were like, and that's what we're trying to do here. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and so ben I was very think- scared when I was asking that question. I, I put that Actually, out there. I, I guess I know I don't I'm trying not to try to derail the conversation. But so I wrote for Oregon Catalyst 
And when I was, and I was doing it on a volunteer basis mostly, and Oregon Catalyst is mostly a conservative partisan opinion blog. But I did break stories there because I had sources, and they were mostly Republican sources. And so I was able to break news that not all the traditional journalists would be able to do. And so I don't do that now because of the job that I have. It would be very difficult to do. But I was thinking about that just in terms of, and I don't think there's a lot of me's out there, but it just it just seemed interesting to me that like there could be a value add there. And certainly there was plenty of just, just straight partisan content that was run there. Again, I'm, I'm just trying to put all this stuff up front there, but I just thought it was, it was an interesting thing for me to consider. And then having you guys here talking about journalism is just, this fascinating. I don't know. Actually, I, I thought when you were starting your question, I thought you were talking about media news in the turn of the century. And I was like, you know what? I've been dying to see and maybe even produce an HBO period series, right? On the on I'm media in the turn of the I'm century. Ready for it. Who would watch that? Come on. I would watch it. And I we would be the only four people watching it, but it would be scary. No, I don't think so. So have you all heard the book The Age of Acrimony? I have not fully read it, but it is on my bedstand. And part of the like part of it, part of the books, it's kind of like a pushback to the people who are like, we're living in unprecedented times and like media is so divided. And mm -hmm. the book is like, well, actually, the late 1800s were way worse in almost every way that yeah. you're talking about. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's um, right. Exactly right. OK, so before we go too far <laughs> astray. So you have a series of recommendations. I'll actually read through some of these recommendations and just verbalize them. And then we can kind of riff on them a little bit, but I am gonna ask a, a direct question. So one recommendation is update curriculum and training for journalists to better prepare them to fulfill journalism's democratic functions in an environment of rapid change and ongoing uncertainty. Sounds very reasonable and needed. Create a statewide framework for ongoing integrated newsroom support and collaboration that increases the underlying pool of journalistic resources. Actually, before I go on from this one, you all have kind of you kind of started facilitating this sort of arrangement that I don't think like consumers of the news realized there was like a back end collaboration. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing on the governor's race? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. And thanks for that opportunity because uh, it is a project that we did launch right before the primaries and it was called the Oregon Media Collaborative. And, and what was cool about it, it really was a collaboration. It was a collaboration from the very beginning. And I know, and in fact, it was with Les Sites, who I know has been on this show. He was actually the fire starter for it. And we ultimately, and we ultimately um, collaborated with the Rural Development Initiative, where we set up several listening sessions with Oregonians across the state, it was virtual. And from there, we wanted to just better understand, well, how do people really want to consume, especially political election coverage? So the more we listened to it, and one of the things that we that was overwhelmingly uh, came out of those conversations was one that really requested this idea that, you know, let's have media stop uh, limiting and, and, and just focusing on two or three of the candidates. We want to be able to see the larger landscape of candidates who mm -hmm. are, you know, pursuing this uh this nomination, right? So this this idea behind it was then how do we then produce a feature that actually heard and re revealed the voices of all 35 candidates? Um, so we ultimately, after those listening sessions, we collaborated with, well, we first formed over 60 plus newsrooms across Oregon to really participate in this collaboration where several of them um, ended up like collaborating and producing questions that went out to all 35 candidates. And we ended up publishing those responses based on those questions. And we, we did it in a way so that each outlet, participating outlet, had the opportunity to co-publish all of that data and, and a side-by-side -side comparison of all the candidates. So, you know, I mean, to me, that's that was just a great opportunity to 
again, first, listen to the community, and then second, share on the resources across all of the news outlets in Oregon so that, you know, together we're better, right? So mm -hmm. I think it was just a starting point. It's a heavy lift, obviously. As we know, it's sort of like hurting cats in some ways or another <laughs> to really get the journalists excited because they need this collaboration. But at the same time, they really don't have time to collaborate because they're limited in, in resources. So all of that is a challenge, but I was happy with uh, and very pleased with what we came up with. And I'm excited for the possibilities of doing something similar like that to really build on this infrastructure and collaborative network that we had proposed in our recommendation. Can I just jump into yeah. and say really quickly that one reason we highlighted collaboration in the report is Andrew was just alluding to this in an environment where newsrooms are, for most of them, almost all of them, like resources are shrinking all the time, time, money, staff is shrinking and shrinking. Collaboration is a way to leverage what they still have and work together in ways that might be more efficient and more productive in the long run. So you can get large scale projects that are not a Herculean task for what would be a really hard task for an individual newsroom to do. You can create a large project like this one. When, once you've got 60 newsrooms working on it, it does require the facilitation. So it's not like it like there's no you can't really do it totally on the cheap. There's still resources that have to be invested, but the payoff for that investment can be greater in collaborative journalism. I'm super into this idea. Like Regina, when we were chatting, we talked about the Columbia Journalism Review article about Oregon Statehouse reporters. And so that for, for listeners, the basic snapshot is in 2005, there were 37 Statehouse reporters in Oregon who were in the state capitol basically every day reporting on what was going on. This came out in 2018. And by 2018, there were 13. So 37 to 13. And it was like a stair step down. And one of the challenges with I think there's a lot of challenges with that kind of shrinking workforce focused on it. But one of them is like most news consumers cannot subscribe to the Register Guard, the Statesman Journal, Oregon Live. Like they're not going to pay for all the subscriptions. And so like if the Statesman Journal is doing a really important piece on some piece of legislation, but they put it behind their paywall, like most people just aren't going to read that or get access to it. So if you can build the infrastructure, and Agora might be the only institution who could pull this off because you're kind of unbiased kind of convener, like you could get really valuable information to people who could use it. So I'm really excited about that idea. I hope it kind of, do you have plans to kind of try to expand the footprint of what kind of topics you're collaborating on? We would love to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's not, you know, it's not like resource free, like there, there has to be some investment made in that kind of work, but we've just found it really, really rewarding. And I think the end product is strong, but I also want to like acknowledge we're not the only ones who have done or headed up collaborative efforts, but I think what Agora brings is a sort of a, a intellectual framework, if you will, if that mm -hmm. makes sense for, for how to do these and why they matter. And I think what we're trying to push toward is how to create sustained, ongoing collaboration. So, so far, mostly what we've seen in Oregon is sort of one-off collaborations, even when they've been incredibly rich, like the Breaking the Silence project that was undertaken by 40-some newsrooms a couple of years ago that looked at the issue of death by suicide in Oregon. Oh, yeah, that's right. Really hard topic. I think 40-some newsrooms participated, and they did a lot of thinking about, okay, what worked about that model? What was hard about it? You know, how could we repeat it in the future? 
But I think, again, without without somebody to lead all the cats or herd all the cats, it can be really hard to get it done. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to get to the next recommendation, and this is where we're going to enter into the, the space of controversial topics. So the next recommendation is create a statewide local news innovation hub with potential collaboration across universities and other institutions. So that in and of itself, not controversial, but some models, and Andrew, we've talked about this before, like some states have state funded, like the state legislature allocates funding to literally pay for these kinds of infrastructure, I guess you could describe it as. And I'm really interested in this as someone who, as of yesterday, will be headed to the state legislature. But it's super tricky because, right, like people get very nervous about government funded news in the United States. We know what government funded news looks like in other countries. I think there's a lot. Reagan, I'm sure folks on your side in particular are nervous about bias in news. And you might point to I think I I was in an argument with Reagan and Alex over text one day and I sent an NPR article. Because to me, NPR is like truly a fair source. And Reagan was like, oh, of course he sends an NPR article. (laughs) Sorry to be very generic Republican on you, Ben. It's also very meta. (laughs) You're talking about public funding and sending it to NPR. Yeah, literally. So so I want to acknowledge, and then there's like, you know, like, so if I'm the legislator that votes for this public funding, then like, is there weirdness about a journalist wanting to like, look at corruption that I might be accused of? Or like, so there's like challenges in the infrastructure setup arrangement and how you do it. But Andrew, I know you are familiar with like all a lot of several models in other states. We asked less about this. Less had a pretty strong view of like, we should not use government funding to expand And that's not a consensus viewpoint by any stretch. I think there's a lot of different ideas, but I'm kind of curious if you could share this question of government funding and the role of state government in particular in helping produce a more robust news ecosystem. I'll start, and I know Regina has some thoughts, and and I'll I'll start, I'll pick up from your conversation with Les, in fact, right? Because even even in that conversation, he had said, um, if it comes to the last possibility he's like it's this hell mary it's like hell mary let's do a public funding and so at the end of it it seems like he'll be okay with it right with that (laughs) said i first off if if there was public funding i think it would be among several diverse sources right Uh i mean it's yeah you wouldn't want to rely strictly on public funding as much as you don't want to rely strictly on advertising because we've seen how where that's gone so, you know, and and when we talked to you, you when we also when you talked to Les, I when you said an SOJC professor or you a UL professor, I figured it was me that you were talking about. <laughs> You've been outed. You've been outed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was me, Les. I anyway, probably should probably partners. should Reagan, at least when he uh he, he accidentally <laughs> outed someone and went back in the edit and removed that reference in a different episode. <laughs> I did not think to do that. So sorry, Andrew. <laughs> Okay, then (laughs) no, that's all good. Anyway, so I did mention the New Jersey consortium, right? And what's interesting about the New Jersey Civic Consortium, and again, is this is it a direct payment from the government to news outlets? And I think that's where even in the NPR model, you do have CPD to become that firewall, right? To be be, to be that uh, for public broadcasting. Oh, it's like a pass-through situation sort yeah, of? Yeah, it's a pass-through. Okay. So it's never, it's not direct funding from government purses to NPR directly. So C- CBB is the one also responsible to distributing funds through NPR 
through IPBS and so on and other sort of public media organizations. And there's a similar model in New Jersey, again, called the New Jersey Civic Consortium, where they're actually funding based on the, you know, the state sale of its old public television licenses are then are able to get the 20 million that they received from that distributed a million a year to then give to the consortium. And again, the consortium has the ability to also take in other funding sources, whether it's foundations or you know, other, other philanthropy work. That would then the consortium, which is I would imagine is a bipartisan consortium that would then make the decisions. And in their model, they would be distributing funds through grants based on emerging media, experimental media, that is really trying to fill those information needs of their communities. That is the criteria. So uh, I'm, there's complexity in all states to be able to take this on. And I would love to actually have those conversations of how do we simplify that complexity to see if this public funding model could work in, in, in our state. Again, with, with similar models like consortium to be the pass through and to actually help define, well, what do, we, what do we mean by journalism, right? What do we mean by news outlets and information providers? And, and again, as Regan um, you know, introduced earlier in the conversation, like what, what are the criteria and how can we decide what makes into the database as much as, well, how can we decide who can apply for a grant to get supported in that yearly funding? I will say at the outset, Oregon 360 Media will not be accepting any state money while either of us are serving in government. So just forget it. We're not doing that. Um, that would be but, uh, legislative <laughs> council will tell us it's a conflict of interest. Yeah. Um, Wait, so, really, Reagan, before, oh, yeah, Regina, I'm curious if you have thoughts on this like government funding question. Yeah, I do. And one thing I want to say is sort of a little bit more foundational than that. So we we use some terminology in the report really deliberately. So we talk about local news and information as a form of civic infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And we do that because we think thinking about infrastructure and thinking about news as part of a civic infrastructure gets us away from thinking about what's happening to individual news outlets and gets us thinking about the overall and underlying system by which communities can learn the information that they need in order to vote, in order to hold government accountable, you know, all of those participate in community life. Mm -hmm. And so then thinking about it as a system also helps us to think about the provision of local news and information as truly a public good in yeah. the same way that roads and bridges and schools and libraries and all of these things that make civic life possible and healthy and really make democratic life possible, mm -hmm. that news and information is so essential to that. So, um, so the point there is to kind of encourage a little bit of a mind shift away from just, for example, away from just, ooh, how do we shore up the existing news outlets that we still have, right? To us, that wouldn't be adequate for really thinking holistically about the problem. Mm -hmm. It's not only enough to figure out how to help existing outlets find a sustainable business model and produce more high quality local news, but you also have to start first by figuring out where are the information gaps? Where is it that communities aren't well served? What are the things that the community wants to learn more about and they feel that they don't know where to turn or there doesn't seem to be a good source of that information? So starting first from community information needs and then thinking about, all right, what kind of infrastructure is needed to fill those needs? So I just wanted to kind of 
you know, provide that definitional picture. Yeah, I, li- I, like that I think a lot. that's good, too. I'm not going to push back too hard because I don't think that's super valuable, although I do have a lot of like philosophical um, questions, I'll say not I'm not I'm not fully formed on the idea at all. But I do think it's fairly common, though, for things that are government funded to have you. The government rarely ever hands out money without expecting certain thresholds or criteria to be met. Right. There's a huge discussion about government in Oregon right now and all the kinds of things that we're funding and whether we sent too much money out the door to nonprofits during COVID without enough Mm -hmm. sideboards. Right. And so like, I think that those are a lot of the questions that'll have to get answered to get buy-in. Right. And I think it doesn't mean you can't get them answered. It just means the the discussion process will be long, you know? And, but I think that that's still, I mean, it's still a worthwhile conversation to have. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be had just because there's people who don't think it should happen. Right. I think that's the reason we have government It's the reason we should talk about stuff. The weird like partisan alignment, not weird, but like potentially useful partisan alignment is like it's a lot of red communities that are being underserved right now in terms of Mm -hmm. access to local news. And Republicans tend to be and you're not the party in power and you won't be the party in power. So like it actually in some ways politically benefits you to have additional watchdog eyes. So I think there might be some like weird political incentive alignment for a conversation to be had, but. Maybe I'm the the one with too much optimism. But anyway, Reagan, next question. So my last question is just kind of based on my own personal kind of experience. And I was just thinking while we were talking about my news consumption habits. So it's a lot of Twitter, which is not healthy. But (laughs) taking that aside, the outlets that I'm most interested in nationally are all digital first publications. I believe they're all mostly corporate owned, right? They they have financers that are private. They have, uh, you know people who are putting in their own cash for it. It's it's like, so puck.news is the one that I subscribe to and pay for that's a subscription-based per, a service, which I like a lot. And they have a lot of really high quality journalists and they basically base their whole model around these journalists being well-known figures in their areas of expertise and they send like really valuable newsletters and they have good insights. The, the next one is Semaphore, which is a recent launch and um, by former uh, New York Times and Politico guys Mm -hmm. who are trying to innovate in journalism by sort of allowing – they have newsletters too. They have good journalists too. But one of the main format differences they do is they separate and they say, okay, here's where the journalist is providing their opinion and here are the facts. And so they kind of break that out into a separate paragraph, which I think is super interesting. And then the last one was Axios, which is really just trying to pioneer. I mean, they're they're aggressively going at newsletters again, which seems to be a common theme with all these guys. And then pioneering the smart brevity format that they've trademarked, right, which seems to be a really valuable asset that they've kind of created that they're trying to also sell to businesses and other kinds of things, right? So we're starting to see the subscription businesses filter in that are, and these are all digital only publications, and that's starting to happen. Less Sites has a couple of those. There's a few more. Are we going to see more of that stuff that's being tested nationally filtered down to Oregon, do you think? And and what are you expecting mm-hmm. next in the kind of evolution of news for Oregon? I, I bet that Andrew has some great answers on this too, but there's one thing that I really want to point out. I'm so glad that you raised these examples because a moment ago when we were saying you know, the, the point of thinking about news as infrastructure and a public good, the point is not to just preserve what has been, mm-hmm. right? Like news is evolving. Demand The public's expectations of news are evolving. What they want, the way they want to receive it, the kind of content that they want. And so that's why for me, investments have to go along with innovation 
in journalistic practice, in methods of delivery, in kind of the, the genre of news. So in some ways, the examples you were providing are all about genre. They're all about, mm-hmm. you know, what's what's a way of formatting news that either more clearly separates out opinion and perspective from just plain facts or gives people that brevity. I'm also a big fan of Vox and their mm-hmm. uh, newsletters that come out and, you know, kind of give you like- Oh yeah, the, their little links data to focus. Other news stories. Yeah, <laughs> links to other news stories if you want to learn more, but kind of here's what you need to know about an issue that's in the news today. So all of these kinds of innovations and especially innovations that really get journalists listening to and in conversation with communities to figure out what matters to them and how they see the issues, that to me is the kind of investment that has to go hand in hand with just figuring out, you know, problems of the business model, so to speak. Andrew, you probably have other things to say about this too. Can you remind me, Reagan, what what your question was? Um, So I'm thinking about generally these kind of new media at the national level, Semaphore, Axios and the and and Pocket and them trying to innovate a little bit, change the business model so that they can make money. Because the other thing I'm thinking about is the Medford Mail Tribune ended their print run. They are now a digital only publication. They no longer provide a four day or five day a week print. Right. And so they're kind of forced to become a digital only publication because of the economics of the business. Right. That's not really innovation. That's just them trying to save money. Right. And they would rather do that than shut down their newsroom. But is there going to be innovations from the national level that filter down to Oregon or maybe generally, what do you see as kind of emerging in Oregon that's going to expand news and innovate in news as opposed to contract and, and shrink it, I suppose. I guess what I would love to see, and and, and maybe this is because um, when you're talking about digital only publications, of course, you know those are great ones that you've identified, and um, excited for the more you know Ben Smith's um, uh, launch was pretty exciting. Um, but we also, when I think about di- digital only publications, I you know go back to like the, the Texas Tribune that has been around and has been extremely right. successful, uh, ProPublica, which has been also mm-hmm. been around for a long time, extremely successful making great journalism and what's interesting about their model and i and i'd love to see more of this and it does respond to that question of what gets possible here in oregon is again going back to the c word collaboration right whenever we've seen ProPublica collaborate with alaska um, a publication in alaska or other other areas they really provide the national context of an issue but drill down to what is happening on the ground so that's i think that's the distinction between the national coverage versus local I, and uh, I was talking to some folks about the, the national aspects of things, and, and it's hard for them to really have a local, at least a community, right? It's hard to, you think of it as an issue-based community rather than a localized geographic community. But if we can blend both, if we can kind of look at opportunities where ProPublica or ProPublica-like publications that really provides that national context, but look at some of the things that are impacting us here in Oregon, let's take the houselessness challenges, right, that we're mm-hmm. facing both in the Portland and, and across the state. We're not, clearly, we're not alone in that. But what, how can we provide that national perspective from a media, national media organization, but then we can then collaborate and really look at how is it affecting us? Then then we can find solutions that other national um, or, um, um, areas are actually fixing, right? What are, what are their solutions? What are, how are they responding to some of those challenges? So, to me, that kind of collaboration of media coverage versus local coverage, I think, would be a great, great opportunity to um, really make make our make the journalism better and make local coverage meaningful back to the community. Mm. 
Well, we are um, rapidly approaching our stop time. So I guess my last question will be, I'll leave it kind of broad. Is there anything from the report that you wanted to pull out and highlight for listeners? Is there any message you have for a sort of political, politically focused audience? Uh, where would you like to leave us today um, as we approach the end of the podcast? And I don't know if either of you would like to kick off first. I guess one thing I really would like to say, I mean, we really did talk for a few minutes about some ideas that are being tried, especially in New Jersey. So I guess the other thing I'd want to emphasize is that New Jersey is not the only place where innovations are happening, and they don't only have to take the form that New Jersey decided to adapt. So for example, um, various states and localities are at least floating the idea, if not actually enacting the idea of various kinds of tax credits that can provide then, again, a, a form of indirect public funding that is essentially consumer-driven, right? The mm -hmm. con for example, a subscription tax credit. The consumer decides what they want to subscribe to or what organization they want to, news organization mm -hmm. they want to donate to, but there's a tax credit attached. And so I, I guess I just wanted to put that into the mix that there's a number of things that are being tried. There's a lot of interesting work being done around so-called replanting where there could be some sort of incentives created for corporate and conglomerate owners of newspaper chains, for example, to decide to, if they're gonna sell a local newspaper, instead of just you know selling it or shutting the door or selling it off to another chain, they could figure out how to convert it to a nonprofit, make sure that it's locally grounded and, and the metaphors of replanting that organization so that it stays vibrant and it stays in the community. So there's just, I guess I would want your your listeners to be thinking about an array of things that we mm -hmm. might do to just make the environment for local news to flourish, to make the environment more conducive to healthy local news. Awesome. Andrew? I want to, I want to pick up what Regina talks about in terms of plant and sort of like posturing that and kind of planting that across um, I'm going to continue that metaphor in this idea of like when we talked about the New Jersey bottle where we're, you know, we're, we're thinking about an, uh, a consortium that actually helps support uh, a large, larger infrastructure. Um, the idea of it is to try to create that infrastructure that, again, begets more infrastructure, right, to support mm -hmm. both local, but also throughout the entire ecosystem. Um, and since, you know, we are in Oregon and we have the, the oldest mushrooms around, uh, you know, it'd be worthwhile to consider well, how does that work, right? How do we create that mycelium network uh, mm -hmm. that also then grows and thrives the local environment, but also stretches out across the entire system like the mycelium network to actually support that and, and make that thrive and flourish. Um, and I would love to see that kind of infrastructure for civic information, you know, a big, big be a big part of our news and information ecosystem. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Andrew and Regina, thank you for coming on and thank you for being thought partners for us as a upstart uh, wannabe media company and for highlighting us in your report. We were really grateful and excited to see that. So we will link to the report um, and probably a few other things that we've collected here. Um, but I guess the last question, if folks want to read the report or learn more, where would you like to direct listeners to, to get engaged? I would encourage everyone to go to agora.uoregon.edu to see uh, the report that's located on our website right now um, on our homepage. But agora.uoregon.edu will take us to take you to the Agora Journalism Center's website. Cool. 
Well, at the very least, we'll uh, have to see you back here next year after the next report is done. Uh, but we'll probably find an excuse to have you back on <laughs> no. before then. <laughs> no pressure or anything. Yeah, really. <laughs> Thank you both very Thanks much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. <laughs>